I think the coal mine is just it's like a real no brainer. It just shouldn't happen. You know, we're very attached to coal mining, the Labour Party. You know, it is the NUM and the miners were one of the people that created us. But it comes back to this idea of just transition. We need to go to net zero and we need to take all the industries with us. And we need to reskill and retool all those people. And that includes people that work in the steel industry, in aviation, in all the high polluting industries. We need to transform the industry so it's net zero or transform the jobs into some other net zero industry. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello there, and welcome to Climactic. My name's Simon Moore, and I'm an environmental activist and science communicator from Leeds, England. Today, I'm very pleased to be talking to my local MP, Alex Sobel, from the Labour and Cooperative Parties, who has been calling for urgent action on the climate emergency. Before we start, though, I just want to set the scene. It's March 2021, and here in the UK, we're in our third COVID-19 lockdown. For those listening in Australia, where Climactic was founded, you're probably looking at us and wondering what the heck is going on. Well, to be honest, so are we. Our government's failure to take COVID-19 seriously has led to repeated delays in measures to stop it spreading. The health of our economy has been prioritised over the health of our people, with devastating consequences. Official figures show that 140,000 people have died with COVID in the UK. 4.2 million have tested positive, including me. That's one in 16 people. Countless thousands now have long-term health problems because of it. And our whole population has been living through the stress of having this silent killer on the loose and unchecked for a whole year. Meanwhile, our economy is not looking good. Approximately 11 million people are on furlough. Nearly 2 million people are unemployed. Yet all the while, some have been making millions of pounds and dodgy contracts awarded without transparency or scrutiny. It's disaster capitalism in action. So with all that in mind, I thought I'd chat to a politician, my own representative in Parliament, Alex Sobel. He's MP for Leeds North West. He lives around the corner from me and he's part of the Labour and Cooperative Parties in opposition to our current Conservative government. I first met Alex outside Leeds Town Hall during a youth strike for climate in February 2019. He was giving a speech to the thousands of kids that had left school for the day, inspired by Greta Thunberg and the many others standing up for what they believe in. For me, seeing Alex's position on climate change came as a bit of a shock. Growing up, I was always engaged with climate change, but I had no real interest in politics. I thought politicians were all the same. They talked, they lied, 
they dodged questions and they were only in it for themselves and for the power. So meeting Alex has been extremely refreshing and is part of the reason I've become more political, I think. Alex and others have been supporting the school strikes from the start. They've helped craft a climate and ecological emergency bill with Extinction Rebellion and they've been pushing for climate action for decades. So whilst they might have failed to protect us from rising emissions and temperatures, that's not for lack of trying. So Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me and thanks for giving me some hope and positivity about politics. As I said, Alex Sobel is MP for Leeds North West. He's also chair of the Net Zero All-Party Parliamentary Group and he is Shadow Secretary for Tourism. Now, if it's okay with you, Alex, I'd like to start at the beginning of your political story. So how exactly did you get into politics and what drew you towards it? So I grew up, I went to school in the 80s and 90s, late 80s and 90s. And we obviously had a conservative government then like we do now. And I went to a youth club and the youth club was in a state of disrepair. The bus services were awful. And, you know, if you didn't have a car, which obviously I didn't because I was at school, getting round anywhere, going to see your friends. And I went to a high school with a big catchment. So you couldn't, there were very few friends I could walk and see. Um, was difficult. And that and that was politicising. And I knew, you know, just like it's very cliched, I knew, you know, Margaret Thatcher was, you know, not popular with young people and, and not popular with me because of that, even though there were a lot of Conservatives where I lived, there was a Conservative MP. Um, and when I came to university, I didn't join the Labour Party straight away or anything like that. I'm Jewish and I was like the only Jewish person in America growing up. When I came to university in Leeds, I thought fascism was something from World War Two, really. But there were real life fascists on the streets of Leeds organising, having meetings. And so I um, got involved in anti-fascist activity. I remember going on Wellington Street and we were all massed on one side of the street and the fascists were in a hotel on the other side of the street and they came out and there was a bit of an altercation. We ran away and there was all those sort of things going on. And, and, and so I got into into that, which is which is, you know, that was an issue which affected me directly, you know, so I had a personal investment. But in my second year at university, um, a group of my friends set up Green Action, which probably people now at the university really know through the, the co-op. But it was just a student society to begin with. And I joined in my second term. So it had been going literally a few weeks. Kath Muller reminded me on the 20th anniversary um, of the setting up that because I thought it already been going a year. But literally, I joined within a few weeks of it starting. And I learned about climate and the environment through that. And the things we did now seem, you know, so naive and, and so low lying, like at the time, there was no doorstep recycling collection, which is unbelievable to, to believe now. And we used to collect cans on Red Route at the university. And we used to put on secondhand clothing sales, which actually, you know, is still very prescient now with organisations like Boohoo and their lack of sustainable fashion, throwaway fashion. So, so those sort of things that we did. But we were really concerned about what would happen. And we knew it was coming down the line, but it wasn't imminent. And now it's imminent. But what, what made me move from being involved in single issue campaigns to being involved in party politics was, you know, um, was really was tuition fees. So tuition fees were brought in when I was on the student union executive. We campaigned against tuition fees. They're brought in by a Labour government. And I was like, this isn't really what I thought the Labour Party was about. Growing up and as a Labour supporter, and I'd voted Labour in every election 
you know, since I turned 18, although that wasn't long at that point. Um, you know, the introduction, the removal of free higher education was something that, that jarred completely my view of Labour. So I thought, well, this is probably like, you know, a temporary error. They made a mistake. You know, they're doing lots of other good stuff, you know, minimum wage, class sizes down to 30, NHS investment, all good stuff. And I was like, so I just need to join, go and point out to them that they made this mistake. And then hopefully after two, a few years, you know, I wasn't unrealistic. I wasn't like it's going to be like a few weeks, but a few years, they'll, you know, scrap feasting. It was a mistake. So I joined the Labour Party and, you know, and went to the meetings and then you sort of get pulled in a bit and you get pulled in a bit more. But also uh, I, I decided within within a few years that that you're always going lobbying. You're always asking somebody else. Somebody else is always making the decision. And that was the politician. And I was like, why can't I make the decision? Why can't people come to me? And it happens a lot now. People come to me and I'm like, I'm having this meeting and I agree with everything you're saying. And so I just need to tell you that's what I'm doing. I agree with everything you're saying. And like, if I wasn't doing this, I would be where you are asking somebody else. But I sort of, I didn't really want to ask other people. I wanted to be making decisions. Unfortunately, as an opposition MP, I'm still not making decisions. And that's the point of trying to get into government. Because once you're in government, Obviously, within a framework and you've got lots of colleagues, people have different views and there's a civil service and the electorate and all the rest of it. But but basically, you, you get to make some decisions if you're in government. And so that sort of that was the sort of journey, you know, um, and it's not without its problems and it's not without its sacrifices. But if you want to be the one making the decisions, you need to be on this side of the fence. That's great. And thinking of the, the context of the pandemic that we're in right now, as you said, you're in the opposition party, but you're close to the action, as it were. Um, why do you think that our government is failing so badly on, on COVID and on the climate crisis? I mean, the two things in some way are related. You know, COVID is a zoonotic disease, right? It's jumped from animals to humans. And the reason it's jumped is because of biodiversity loss, because of an encroachment on habitat because of industrialization and that's all part of the growth of emissions and the loss of carbon sinks so that's why we've got the the climate and ecological crisis that we are you know in the foothills of really um and so the two things are closely related and they're also the solutions are closely related it's because politicians are too obsessed with short-term decision-making cycles and part of that's through with elections, but that certainly isn't to say that what we should do is scrap elections and just like, you know, people should be in charge forever because that also that wouldn't also would not work. Um, but that that you need to have long term policy making. And, you know, there are lots of other crises where people react to them. And I was saying this on a podcast earlier, actually, the big thing that we need, apart from state action, is societal change, attitudinal change. Now, if two years ago you'd said that people would have to be locked down in their houses for months on end, you'd have gone, it'll never happen. People won't do it, won't respect it. But very quickly, almost straight away, it happened. And the vast majority of people respect it. The number of people sticking to lockdown rules now suddenly became advocates for net zero and became climate advocates. We'd see change happen very quickly. And even if they did it grudgingly, even they said, like, I don't really I don't really want to do this. A bit like the lot. I really want to do this, but it's necessary. It's necessary to make to make these sacrifices. It's necessary to take this action. It's the same argument for climate. So I do think the two are related in that sense. 
Um, and I think they're also related in the sense that, that COVID, one of the drivers of COVID is climate destruction. Again, thinking of the, the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, from an outsider's perspective, politics and politicians, and especially conservative politicians, at the moment, it really feels like there's a lot of corruption and cronyism going on um, and sort of, you know, look, looking after the mates and, and dodgy contracts and things like that. So why is it that politics seems to be so kind of susceptible to corruption? I, I say I don't think it's corruption. I, don't, I wouldn't like to talk about corruption. Political corruption means um, that a politician takes a payment or um, a, a benefit from someone to undertake a political action. So we had the cash for question scandal in the 90s, which actually got rid of the MP where I was growing up because they had to resign because of cash for questions and got rid of, you know, uh, Hamilton in Tatton and all of that. So um, this is this is different. This is cronyism is a much better way of talking about it. So it's about the fact that um, we had contracts given out to people who were not qualified, who had some relationship, either direct or indirect, to the decision maker in government. Um, and I think it happened because of the rapid nature of the shift that needed to happen because of COVID. But it goes back to the fact that the government never stopped our PPE. There was a review under the previous government, which directly predicted that we would not this exact disease, obviously, but that we would have um, pandemic shocks in the future and that the, the government needs to do certain things which included the stockpiling PPE, included the provision of testing for the disease, included the provision of track and trace and the government didn't do any of those things and they were always running from behind and if somebody you know rings you or somebody else that you know and says oh yeah I can get you a million pieces of PPE in the next few weeks you just need to give me a contract it's how much it will cost and you're in a crisis mode and you are able to make that decision without scrutiny, then that'll happen. Now, you know, I will say that if Labour was in government, I don't think we'd have done that. One, I thought we would have stopped part of the PPE, but I don't think we'd have done that. We'd have gone through proper processes. And also, I don't. we don't have the same relationships with business, to be honest. But some of those contracts were absolutely astounding. You know, what, what the business did before, or even there was no business meant toward the contract and and that's why i so strongly believe that we need a public inquiry into the handling of covid once the crisis is over once uh, and, and there'll always be an element of covid with us to a greater or less extent but once we've got the majority of the population vaccinated once we pass the 21st of june um if that staging date happens on time then in the autumn we need to have a, a public inquiry with an independent judge or qc to to chair it and one of the many things that have been affected by the pandemic uh, is COP26, which of course was supposed to be hosted in November last year and is now um, due to be hosted in November this year. How kind of optimistic are you about COP26, which the UK is a co-host for um, up in Glasgow this this year? Yeah. So first, I'm, I am in in some ways I'm really pleased that it got delayed by a year because if it had been last November. The world's largest emitter, the United States, would have gone and been represented by whoever Donald Trump chose to represent the United States. They wouldn't have signed up to the agreement. Um, they might not have even gone to the conference, in fact. This year, um, the United States is going to be represented by John Kerry, 
the level of ambition Joe Biden is showing and the things he said about COP are well in excess of what our government is saying and doing. Obviously, the, the you know, the, the proof is in the eating and we'll need to see what happens in America. But, you know, the, the fact that they talked very strongly yesterday when they passed the 1.9 trillion COVID package about the climate and about a green and recovery and a just transition and all those things heartens me. And John Kerry said that the COP in Glasgow is the last best chance we have to avoid a climate emergency. Those words, you know, need to be repeated. And he has, I, I went to a meeting with him um, last week. It wasn't just me and him, by the way. There was quite a lot of other people there. I'm not quite at that level. I get meetings with John Kerry yet. Um, but um, but he, he repeated that. And, and that's the message. And I want to hear our government saying that. I want our government to put in the urgency in. And, and the budget, I think, this week was a missed opportunity in the fact that we could have really had much stronger underpinnings in terms of a, of, of a green recovery and just transition. You know, I was really pleased that we're going to get the National Infrastructure Bank in Leeds. But 12 billion capitalisation, is that enough? Is the net zero criteria that's going to set on, on its investments going to be strong enough? Those are all things I'm going to scrutinise and, and call, obviously, for more money to go into net zero investments from there. But these are all good beginnings. These are all acorns. And we can hopefully grow the oak trees rapidly. And we need to. We can't wait 100 years for these oak trees to grow. These need to be, you know, these, need to, these oak trees need to grow like bamboo. <laughs> Supercharged oak trees. Um, and you co-sponsored the recent Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill, which is tabled in Parliament by Caroline Lucas, our one and only Green Party MP in January. I've actually got a clip here of you talking about it a year ago outside Parliament during XR protests. I'm going to play that clip. You see the difference between when I was a, not a shadow minister and a shadow minister. See if I'm as, <laughs> as radical now as I was then. Okay, so I'm here today, right in front of Parliament, um, with, with Extinction Rebellion, because the government haven't declared a climate emergency, haven't acceded to any of the three demands of Extinction Rebellion, and action needs to happen immediately. We are not seeing uh, a, a fall in our climate emissions. We're not seeing the transformation of our society that we need if we are to avoid um, warming of over one and a half degrees and the terrible climatic effects that will bring. Um, and what's really important actually here is that one, we're building public pressure um, and two, we're pressuring, we're pressuring the legislature, we're pressuring parliament. I'm working with Extinction Rebellion on a bill, on a private member's bill, the government aren't bringing forward a bill to try and meet some or all of Extinction Rebellion's three demands. And I'm hoping to put that down before Parliament finishes, although we're proroguing coming back, but in the new session, um, so that we can start that work and get the government to fully come on board um, behind tackling the climate emergency. It's quite a good moment there. They all they all cheer just as you say you're you're working with Extinction Rebellion on the bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with everything that guy said. <laughs> so that was you uh, about 18 months ago. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us about your involvement in that bill? So I met with Extinction Rebellion probably about six months before then, and they talked to me about the, the basic idea of what they wanted. And I worked with them in a coalition with, with other MPs, including Caroline, who eventually tabled it, and Clive Lewis and others, to, to, to develop the bill with them, with the clerks in the House, 
Um, I actually had a slot to put it put it down myself, but then we had the 2019 general election, and then we came back, and then I became a shadow minister, so I couldn't put it down. And so Caroline, um, and it was and it developed a bit since then as well. Put it down. I mean, the the important thing that I said there, that's also in the bill. One of the important things is is about sort of citizens' participation around having climate assembly. What has happened in that intervening period is that that six select committees ran uh, a climate assembly but it's not binding it's not legislative it's just part of you know select committees are scrutiny committees of the government but it was useful to show that it could be done and also what people thought so i still think we need a we still need that we still need that legislation we still need a proper climate assembly which the government runs um and we can run at higher scale it can be like there was a really good one in Ireland, which led to the change in law on abortion, you know, it was really a watershed moment for for the people of Ireland, and and I think that um, that that could be the same here around climate, other issues as well potentially, but but climate as well. And the other thing I think that's really important about the bill, one is that it talks about climate and ecological emergency, so it also talks about biodiversity, land use, the oceans, you know, which are all huge issues. Which even if we reduced the emissions but did nothing on some of those other issues, which is potentially possible, it's potentially possible to have a, um, like a zero carbon society which still massively encroaches on the natural world and acidifies the oceans. Though it's much more difficult to do it, but it's still technically possible if we really wanted to, which we obviously wouldn't. Um, it takes into account that ecological emergency. And the other thing is, is that there's also a lot of problems around transnational emissions. You think about aviation shipping, like whose emissions are they? You know, if you can drive from one place to another, if you're a ship, container ship that makes 16 stops, whose emissions are those? You know, those sort of issues are taken into account in the bill. Um, you've also got the issue of embedded emissions. So I buy you know, I'm just looking at a laptop, a set of headphones and a microphone. They're all made in China, right? So whose emissions are they? They're the Chinese emissions at the moment, but shouldn't they be my emissions? I bought it. If I didn't buy these products, then the Chinese wouldn't make them, right? So whose emissions are they or should they be shared? So the bill takes those things into account, which is also part of the problems with the way that we, that we undertake things at the moment, that things get missed, things get lost. And I guess, crucially, how do you think we get conservative mps to support the bill do you think there's lessons to be learned from the climate change act in 2008 which was proposed by labor mp ed miliband and passed into law by a conservative government the same challenge we've got today yeah i mean it ha- i mean in lots of things that we're doing we can get conservative mps involved they've got um, an environment network which contains in more than enough mps to defeat the government if they vote in a different way to the government um we've got you know a number of all party groups which include conservative including mine my net zero group was we founded it actually with another conservative mp who became minister and now isn't again so trying to get him back on board but we have got quite a few conservative vice chairs climate change all party groups got conservatives etc cetera, etc cetera. so th- they are interested and involved but they haven't they aren't yet prepared to take the steps to this bill. I think what we're seeing and what really should be making Conservative MPs think very strongly, particularly around net zero, but also around the ecological emergency, is there's a step change in the corporate world. Some bits of the corporate world have been alive this longer. So, for instance, insurance firms, they saw their insu- they can see their insurance risk going through the roof because of climate change. They see their business becoming unviable. I mean, they're having enough problems with COVID, you know, never mind climate. And COVID is like a, a pimple compared to what 
what the climate will do to an insurance industry. And so that, that they've been on this journey for a while. But you're seeing we saw what Volvo and Ford in the last few weeks, they've said that they're going to stop producing internal combustion vehicles and go fully electric. Why is that? Not out of the goodness of their hearts. That is because a lot of countries have now said we are ending the sale of these internal combustion vehicles, including the UK. I'd want an earlier date in the UK, but the UK, France, China, Costa Rica is actually the first country in the world to have a ban. You know, lots and lots of countries and they've just gone, we won't be able to sell cars in any of these countries. Wouldn't it just be easier to switch our manufacturing over? Then we, we're the first ones. We're the first ones to change. The usually is an advantage if you're the first ones when there's technological change to make the change. Yeah. If you're the last one to make the change, you're left behind. You're the guy selling the carriage when everybody else is selling the car. And it's the same now. If you're the last one selling the internal combustion vehicle and everybody else selling the electric or the hydrogen, you, you've missed the boat. So, you know, and then your business is finished. So it's the same thing. But to get that shift, you need a combination of, of, of the attitudinal shift in the private sector and then the government shift in legislation. And we're now almost at a point where the private sector is ahead of the UK government. You know, the amount of corporates I'm talking to, when I first became an MP, I was like, I'm not taking a meet with any of these people. These people are, are the enemy, you know. I'm a socialist. My job is to effectively transform society so that we have a much more mixed economy and we don't have huge global corporations which have, have all this power. Now I take the meetings because I, I'm, I'm like, if we haven't got enough time, you know, that's still my dream, but we haven't got enough time to do that and save the climate. So we, we, need to, we need to get them to make the transformation now and then also do the political action for everything else at the, at the same time alongside it. But if they're all sitting there guzzling gas and, and, we're, and we're doing all this, especially if we're not in power, especially the Tories are in power, it's going to take too long. So I do engage them and push them. And I feel like, you know, with companies that I've engaged with, I'm not going to name any, but I'm thinking of like four or five companies straight away, big corporates, you know, household names that I've engaged the last few years. And I've seen them go on the journey. I'm not saying, and I've been pushing them. I'm not saying they've done it because of me. But but they've seen the way the wind's blowing and all of us have been part of that. All that all of the you know, public campaigns, whether you're XR or whether you're a, a eco synagogue, you've all played your part in putting pressure on this societal change, and that's really important. And we've recently seen a couple of high profile sort of controversies in the UK with local councils approving highly polluting new projects. We're seeing the first new deep UK coal mine for more than 30 years, which has been given approval in Cumbria. And now airport expansion plans have been approved just a few miles from you and I at Leeds Bradford Airport. What do you make of those decisions and the government's refusal to take responsibility for them? I mean, the planning system's broken. I mean, not just, just because of these decisions, but it's generally broken. Like If you look at planning decisions on housing schemes, and houses are being built, and then when they're finished, people moving, they already need retrofitting, you know, take care of the climate emergency. And the government are planning to make it worse, not better. So these big schemes have national significance, and they should not be taken at local level. The council, I'll be honest, are not competent to be taking um, decisions of this national and international magnitude, these two decisions you've spoken about. And I feel like I've got the backing of people at the university because Paul Chatterton said it yesterday on Look North. So, you know, and he led the letter with um, Julia Seinberger, I think, to Robert Jenrick about the call-in. So 
we need to transform the planning system. And, you know, we we almost need these big decisions to go to planning inquiry first, the planning inquiry to, to do a proper long scale inquiry on it, then report, and then for the Secretary of State to make the decision. And I think with the sixth carbon budget coming, the Secretary of State, you know, should be saying, well, is this compliant or not with the sixth carbon budget? And also the, the inquiry needs to look at it in that context. And if it's not, if it's not, and obviously if it's for building in that period or the fifth carbon budget, either the fifth or the sixth, you know, whatever, whatever the period is, it's um, it, it needs to be rejected. But I think with, you know, I think the coal mine is just it's, it's like a real no brainer. It just shouldn't happen. You know, we're, we're very attached to coal mining, the Labour Party. You know, it is the, the NUM and the miners were one of the people that created us. But it comes back to this idea of just transition. We need to go to net zero and we need to take all the industries with us. And we need to reskill and retool all those people. And that includes people that work in the steel industry, in aviation, in all the high polluting industries. We need to transform the industry so it's net zero or transform the jobs into some other net zero industry. And so the government need to look at this holistically. And a, a one local authority, even if it's a large local authority like Leeds or a county council like Cumbria, are not tall to do this. You know, they just, just aren't. And the councillors with the best will in the world are, you know, are doing it in a quasi-judicial capacity and it's not the same as a planning inspector, you know. So it's just the system's wrong. That's the problem. Yeah. And so we can campaign against individual decisions. We absolutely should. And I will. I want the decision to get called in. And I'm, I'm just waiting for the, the meeting, which should be this week, Thursday the 11th, to conclude. And at that point, if there's no major change, which, you know, they are empowered to do, let's just see what happens then uh, I'll be asking um, Secretary of State to call the decision in as well. Well, you've got my backing on that as well. I co-signed that letter. I think there's 246 staff and, and postgraduate researchers from the university. So I think it's an interesting thing about kind of what geographic level different decisions should be made. Um, I turn now to the, the county we're in, West Yorkshire, which recently got a devolution deal to give it more money and power to make its own decisions. How big a step forward do you think that is? I think devolution is a really big opportunity. There's an opportunity for us to create green jobs, green industries. And, and like when we talk about green jobs, a lot of people think about um, things, you know, like building solar panels and wind turbines and doing installations um, or building low carbon houses like the city development in Leeds, which is great. But actually, there are also a large number of jobs in what I'd call natural services. So we need to think about climate mitigation, but we also need to think about climate adaptation. Climate, a lot of climate adaptation will need that sort of natural system services. We need to think about flooding. You know, when these are a big victim of flooding just down the road in Hebden Bridge, are even bigger victim of flooding. And you need to think about um, upstream natural flood defences. You need to think about um, floodplains and what goes in the floodplains. These are things which, which, which are job creators and which are things that devolution can get involved in. There's a whole range of other things. We just need to think about things like raising awareness, um, advising people about the, making the change. So all of those things are going to need professionals to do that. So there's a job there for skills and training. And then at the end of that, 
um, a job people can go into. And I think that, that devolution can have a big impact on that. What devolution can't do is replace the national government, though. You know, it is unrealistic, for instance, to say that mayors should be making national decisions which currently are in the purview of government about the whole country. So they can ask for devolved powers, you know, on issues like transport, on issues like skills, on issues like um, probation, health, policing, which they, which they have. But to say that they should be taking on legislative power, that's just that's uh, that's unrealistic. What what I believe is actually that we have a two centralised country and that sooner or later, preferably sooner, we need to develop a federal country. If you just look at all of our major comparator countries, your France's, your Germany's, your Italy's, your Spain's, even the US, there is a lot more federal power. They're, they're federal countries where there are decision making bodies, there are state governors, there are tax powers, all of that. And there is a written settlement and you understand how it works. We have none of those things. Why have we got mayors in some places and not in others? Why do you have to write a devolution deal, which is individually, you know, negotiated with the government? So you, so people, most people in US Yorkshire have got no idea what powers the mayor's going to have, and what the mayor's not going to have. If we had a, a federal system and every part of the country had the same powers, made the same decisions, people at least have an idea. Yeah. And, and that's where we need to get to. And we've got local elections in May to decide who we want as the first mayor of West Yorkshire. I'm pretty sure you're supporting the Labour candidate, Tracy Brabin, for the position. Why do you think she'd make a good West Yorkshire mayor? And why didn't you fancy it? Well, uh, the first one, uh, I'll answer answer the second one first. Um, I I didn't run for mayor because, one, I've not been in Parliament very long. And secondly... And this is a really difficult thing to say as a Leeds person, and, and, and maybe other people in Leeds disagree with me. But the other four local authorities of West Yorkshire, there is a feeling that everything is Leeds-centric, that everything good comes to Leeds. And if the mayor had come from Leeds, there'd then be also a view that everything would come to Leeds in the whole of West Yorkshire. I mean, I'm disappointed that both the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats chose candidates from Leeds, Leeds City Councillors, to be the, the, the candidates. They should, have, they should have looked around and gone... Well, we understand. And actually, Leeds, Leeds does disproportionately do well against the rest of Yorkshire. I'm not saying it's the rest of the country. Compared to London, it does really badly. And this is sort of the point. And that's why it's important that we had somebody not from Leeds. I also think if you look, every single mayor in this country, devolved mayor, not city mayor, but devolved mayor, Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, the west of England, north of the Tyne, Tees Valley, I think I've just named all of them, Maybe not, but those are those are the ones that come to mind straight away. What have they all got in common? Not political party. They're both Labour and Conservative, but they're all men. They're all men. We need to elect a woman mayor to show that women can be mayors too. We'd set, we're beginning to set a pattern here that says that women can't run devolved authorities. They can run councils. They become MPs. They can be the prime minister, but they can't be devolved mayors. Why is that? And we need to break that. We need to break that glass ceiling. And Tracy's absolutely person to do it. And so I'm going to come on to the next point. And also, Tracy's from Batley and Spen, from Howden Clough. If you look at Batley on a map of West Yorkshire, it's in the middle. It's almost exactly in the middle of all the major conurbation centres, Leeds, Wakefield, Bradford, Huddersfield, Halifax. So people there, she represents, goes and works in all of those five places. 
They all have an understanding. She represents them. She herself, growing up, looked towards Leeds, Bradford, Huddersfield, Halifax, Wakefield. And we need somebody to represent Leeds, Bradford, Huddersfield, Halifax, Wakefield, Batley, all the small towns and villages in the five local authorities. And and I think that, that she she has that ability. And then secondly, the mayor's got two things. It's got the hard power and the devolution deal, but it's also got the soft power. And the soft power means that when something comes to the UK, it's got a choice whether it comes to West Yorkshire or Greater Manchester or London or somewhere else. And I think that Tracy will be a brilliant ambassador for West Yorkshire and she'll be able to bring that investment in. One of the things and you know, I'm sort of preempting the manifesto, but this is in a selection manifesto as well, is that she talked about a film studio for the North. It's inevitable because the UK's position in global filmmaking, and you just look at the number of films and TV shows that are being made already, particularly in Yorkshire, actually, we've got beautiful landscape for it, um, that, that, that will be a permanent film studio. Now, I want that film studio to be in West Yorkshire, not in Leeds, actually, but in somewhere which had a big industrial heritage, and has lost a lot of jobs. For those young people to look and to go, I could work in that film industry, I could work in the films industry, and I could then go and work anywhere in the world on any production. And I'm in a pit village and I'm leaving, you know, and I'm leaving school at 16 or 18, and I can go and do an apprenticeship at that film studio. In the same way that 30 or 40 years ago, they talk about going to work in the steel mill or the coal mine. And I think Tracy's got the ability to bring those big projects here. And the big climate projects as well, you know, um, culture industries, climate, medical COVID has shown that we're going to need a lot more medical research, pharmaceuticals, all the rest of that. Um, so I want the fair share of those jobs to come to West Yorkshire. And I don't believe that any other candidates are going to be remotely able to bring that investment in. We've got enough on as MPs to do to do that. We'll, we'll, we can we can do a bit. But we have to go to Parliament we have to make laws to represent our constituents at the constituency level. The Metro Mayor is the right level to be attracting that investment in were also you know think about things about tourism how great was the tour de france the le grand depart absolutely brilliant 2014 welcome to yorkshire needs support of not just the mayor of south yorkshire but mayor of west yorkshire and have that vision so tracy working with god i forgot dan jarvis i said all those places that have mayors i forgot south yorkshire but it's a man as well so it didn't didn't dilute my point um to work with welcome to yorkshire so we can bring those big events in as well you know that those sport culture especially after COVID, are going to be so important to people's lives. That's excellent. Just a final quick question. What would be your kind of top tips for maybe other activists that are listening who might want to try and influence or, or already be trying to influence their elected politicians? Right. I think work out, first of all, whether the politician agrees with the aim of your campaign. Because if they do and if they don't, that's it's a very different approach, right? If they do, then it's really a discussion about tactics. And so listen, then listen to each other. So it's also less politicians. If you both agree, then listen to each other. If there's a tactical difference on how you achieve the outcome, because the important thing is the outcome, not the process here. Um, understand why each of you have that view. Review the evidence. Have that discussion. Don't act as though the politician's acting in bad faith because they at some point say, well, maybe it's now time to wait or maybe we need to look at it slightly differently. They may have a view of that, particularly if they're standing between you and the government and it's a government decision because they are closer to those government ministers. And they've sat in a room with them and, and they've got a better understanding of how their minds work. 
alternatively, if they don't agree with you, you need to work out why. You need to work out what areas or what what sympathies they may have that will help your case. You know, so if they are, for instance, they go to a, a faith institution, they go to a church or a mosque or a synagogue or whatever, and they're invested in that. What are the values in that faith community? What are the leaders of the faith community saying about that issue? If they're agreeing with you, join with them. There's some other organisational thing that they're involved with. If it's bit, if they're from a business background, what are the businesses that they sort of sector they're coming from saying about it? Understand their motivations. Try and persuade them through their motivations. The worst thing to do is to go and is, is just you're not going to persuade anybody by um, shouting them down. And I know, like, I mean, it's it's it makes you feel better. It makes me feel better. <laughs> I do it as well. Like, you know, I do. I'll stand in Parliament and sometimes somebody will say something on the other side and I'll just explode. And I will. And you'll catch it off mic in, in the House of Commons. Have done once, twice. I've been told off, <laughs> um, you know, um, but and, 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 it, and some people are hopeless, you know, like, I mean, I could even name some MPs locally or just you're just never going to persuade them on, on any of these issues. But you've. You've got to try and if you re, if you're there to change their minds, you need to understand their motivations and work through that. That's that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, uh, and good luck with everything, Alex. Thanks a lot, Simon. This was really great, and I'm looking forward to hearing the podcast when it's out. So, I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. My thanks go to Mark Spencer and Climactic for having me back on. Thanks again to Alex Sobel for taking the time out to talk to me. And thank you for listening. Have a great day. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Studio.